This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the World Beyond War podcast. This is Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm here with Sharzad Kayatin, who is speaking to us from Tehran. Sharzad has written articles for World Beyond War. She wrote one very moving article about the effects of sanctions on human beings in Iran, and that's how I was introduced to the work she does. Sharzad, can you just tell us a bit about who you are, the work you do? And anything else you'd like to say to introduce yourself before we start talking about current events? Hi, thanks for having me in World Beyond Bar. My name is Sharsad Khayatian. I'm a peace and human rights activist. I call myself an artivist. Before we start to talk, I really want to say my condolences to all those people who have lost their families and their loved ones in this uh, last plane crash in Tehran, all those 176 people that um, lost their lives and their families. Well, thank you for saying that. You say that you're an artivist. I love that term, at World Beyond War. We're also very interested in the intersection between arts and activism. How did you become an artivist and did you invent that word? I didn't invent that word, but... Um, Actually, I started my studies as a university student in directory. Uh, I have a BA and MA in directory. And uh, after years of working in that field, as you know, all uh, roads lead to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I found that I am interested in human rights issues and I started working on them. Then after some years and after watching other people's movies and theaters, I found out that some people think they are um, using art to teach something about human rights, but they don't know the exact thing. So they are doing it wrong. So I restarted my studies as actually as an international human rights student in LLM, actually my second master's. And I am now writing my thesis on archivism, which I didn't know has a word. The name of my um, thesis at first was using art to teach peace and human rights. But in my researches, I found out that archivism is a word which is being used since 1997 or something. Hmm. That's, uh, it is when art and activism meet each other. Great. Well, love it. I... Since you began by, by expressing your, your feelings and, and your sorrow about the plane crash, I want to begin by expressing to you how gutted and devastated I am that the, if I may say, illegitimate leader of my country chose to provoke a war with your fine country um, a couple yeah. of years ago by assassinating um, a senior member of your government. I'm horrified. Um, yeah. And I'm horrified that a peace process that took years and years and much courage on all sides to to begin was thrown in the garbage so that we can escalate to to a new state of war um, so. i hope not me too and we may as well jump right into it it seems to me that we are not far from war i am hopeful that it will not continue to escalate but i don't 
feel that many issues have been resolved. I'd love to know your perspective on where exactly this conflict is and where the world is right now. Actually, I think uh, we have to say where the Middle East is now, <laughs> not the world, because um, I think this region is completely different from other uh, parts of the world. I don't know, maybe it's the oil or many other things that this region has. I, I am 36, actually, Mark, um, but I never felt security and peace in my whole life in this region. I am a woman born and grown up in this region. And uh, when I was born, it was a war between Iran and Iraq. And I remember five years of it. And after that, we never felt peace. Uh, so... Um, I think it is completely different from the other parts of the world. And what we are experiencing, I think you have to be here to understand. Hmm. Um, the, the fear that we had all these past two weeks, all the, the threats between uh, US and Iran, even a single word. I remember my whole friends, my family, they were... Uh, checking the news, they wanted to know when they will uh, going to be bombed again. When will, there will be there will be deaths again, and um, the plane crash came. Uh, so um, you know, it is it is a completely different area. Yes, I see that, and this is why it feels really um, feels like a healthy thing for me to be speaking to you from New York City to Tehran. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> should be something that that happens very often, especially given the history of conflict between our societies, and almost yeah. never happens by by saying hello to each other and and meeting each <laughs> other. We're way ahead of most people, at least in my country, who. I'm sorry to say, never speak to anybody inside the country of Iran. There's actually a lot of fear. You know, uh, I have seen a lot of Americans here because I was never in America, but um, I have seen Americans here and I have family there. Um, mm -hmm. When they come here and they see um, the atmosphere, they um, understand that uh, the propaganda that media has, it is not uh, exactly the same. But still, we have some problems that we cannot omit. In some of the emails leading up to this, you, you mentioned that there's nothing simple about the political equation that you're in and that there yeah. are many sides to this. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you see your country's internal politics and culture being affected by these conflicts right now? Culture, I think, has been affected since the revolution, actually, not now. Okay. Uh, when you read the history, uh, you can understand that the culture has been changed since uh, 14 years ago. It's not for uh, these two weeks or, I don't know, maybe last week or last year. Mm -hmm. um, but about internal politics, I'm not a politician to talk about that. But um, as I can see as an ordinary person who actually is reading about politics, I can see that it is a dead end, that the politics, the internal politics that we, uh, we are choosing, I think it's a dead end. And it doesn't mean that the US policy is okay. I, I'm not talking about that. But when you say internal policies, when I uh, hear the supreme leader talking, I can understand that when, when you um, omit negotiation in 
21st century, that means we are in a dead end and we are not, go we are not improving because as far as I know, the wars are not more bombing each other. Wars are the sanctions that we are that the U.S. is in, uh, is imposing to us, and we are tolerating it. It mm -hmm. is it is actually a war, and uh, my people are you know tolerating it because some politicians doesn't want to talk to each other. They don't want to accept each other's views. So I think our internal politics is a very bad event. <laughs> what you're describing, to use a word I use to describe my country's very troubled politics, I use the word dysfunctional. I, I believe our government is completely dysfunctional at this point. Basically, is that the sort of thing you're saying that the divisions have left the government less able to competently do their, do their job? No, I want to say that, um... You know, if uh, U.S. is imposing sanctions to us, the dead end is where uh, you cannot do, uh, as a government, you cannot do anything outside your country. So you too impose some things on your people, on your mm -hmm. own people. The plane crash was one of them. I because see. of the threats, because of the, uh, all the things that um, they thought it would be a war. But I myself think war is not anymore bombing each other. Because nowadays, many countries have uh, atomic bombs and they know if they use it, the other one will use it again. So um, it is not about bombing each other. It is about um, not accepting the other, uh, the other people's ideas. Uh, the other, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, we, um, we must accept everything. But I think that we can talk. And in that talk, you can find a new way. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I want to point to, I'm looking right now at the article you wrote for the World Beyond War website. This was in February of last year, just about a year ago. And the title is Iranian Sanctions, Iraq Redux. So yeah. anybody's listening to this and would like to learn more about that. I mean, this was a very moving article where you, Thank you. you spoke about the the human effects. And um, anybody who's listening to this can, can go Google that article. But do, could you just sort of fill in what, what Actually, that, you that was my second article for World Beyond War. The first one had five stories of uh, five uh, real people. One of them, one of them was me, actually. Mm -hmm. I wrote my own story. And this one, I think, was six or seven story that I wrote. And it was about um, uh, one of my classmates. Uh, mm -hmm. Her sister has this son that um, I wrote her story that the sanctions stopped um, coming in, the medicine that he needed. Mm -hmm. um, and they were supposed to bring the medicine from other parts of the world and the quality wasn't that good. So um they they were they they were full of fear of losing their child in, at the age of nine nine or ten i think i think he was at his nine when when we uh, had the interview and nowadays it is war, even worse because um uh i my one of my friends uh, lost her father two months ago um because of a very simple um uh, you know sickness when, yeah. they took, when they took him to hospital, they said, we don't have the medicine. 
so VAR is not, I, I, I say again that VAR is not bombing only. Uh, my people are dying here because mm -hmm. of the sanctions. So what's the difference? Well, I'm really glad you're emphasizing this, and I, I'm, I'm sure you know because you're a part of it, that World Beyond War definitely agrees with you that sanctions mm -hmm. are an act of war. In fact, I am hearing more and more people speak up about this. I have to say, sadly, that here in the United States, there's very little consciousness of the effect our sanctions may have among the general public, but there are more and more peace groups or anti-war groups and individual activists who are really loudly speaking up to say exactly what you just said. The idea of a nine-year-old child who cannot get medicine is, th yeah, that's, that is war. That's, um, Actually, Mark, I should add something. I can understand your people. Polariz polarization I, uh, nowadays in my country is also a, an issue. We are now two parts. Some, some people are against government and the way it, it thinks, and some people accept it, and they are not, uh, they are not in a small amount. Mm, but the thing that helps this polarization, I think, is media, and that's what I'm working on. We need more peaceful medias so mm -hmm. that we can talk truly about what is happening. Now, uh, in these past two weeks, I have seen many things, even among families, that they, they are splitted. Uh, some of them believe in something and some of them reject that idea completely. So you can see the same thing that you say in US, you can mm -hmm. see in Iran. We are, all, we are all people and these things happen everywhere. You said that there are two sides. Yeah. Would you say these sides align with political parties or with political positions. I'm certainly aware of the difference between Rouhani and Ahmadinejad before. Uh -huh. Do these two leaders, the difference in these two leaders, define two sides that you're talking about? Or no. Other than no. That? Okay. No. Can you Maybe the very first time that Rouhani was elected, you could say that. But the second time, um, now most of the people that's... Um, chosen him they think he's the same side really okay. oh no it's not that but uh if i want to define the two sides um maybe the, um, the side that i'm standing <laughs> it's not completely defined because we don't have any media when the other side wants wants to talk they are they have the freedom of expression they can mm -hmm. gather together they, and um, the media are allowed to um, cover, the, you know, cover the full things that they do, they say, they think. But the other side, there, there is no media for them and there is no freedom of expression. No one can talk. Even when you write in your social media, it is going to be che checked. And um, some people have been jailed for that. Some of them are still in, the, in jail. Right. So um, I, I can't say it is completely defined because we, we can't find each other uh, properly and talk to each other. How do you manage to 
be an activist in an environment like this? It is so hard. I use my social media. I use uh, even face-to-face talking to people. I try to sometimes even introduce a book to some people mm-hmm. uh, for them to start reading, you know, for them to understand what is happening outside. I don't say what is happening outside is exactly what is correct or uh, we should do. I'm not saying that. But when you open your horizons, I think you can analyze better and you can choose better. So um, it is not always completely direct. You, I'm not going to talk to people. When, when some people are, are close to me, I directly talk to them. But when they are a bit, you know, far, I try to use other ways to do that. Yep. I have, I have you know, maybe you, you, may, you may have seen my video. I have made a movie, a short film about UDHR, the... Universal Declaration of Human Rights last year. I see a video called Be the Voice of the Voiceless. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the one. That's the one. So yes, I, I do hope those who listen to this will check that out. I'm also curious. I love it that you just said you recommend books to people. As an anti-war activist, I do that all the time. I'm wondering if there's a book you could recommend to me right now. Actually, <laughs> I'm waiting for my thesis to be finished and then uh, translate David's books to Farsi. The, oh, wow, the, great. Yeah, because <laughs> I told him that I want to translate it, but my thesis is uh, getting so long. We don't have that much books about peace uh, here in Farsi, but people who can read in English, I ask them to read this book. And um, I have actually... Um, uh, told my friends to read uh, books of Yuval Harari if you have read about them, the Sapiens or Homo Deus or the 21 uh, Lessons for the 21st Century. Um, I'm not sure I'm familiar with this. Is it- uh, there are three books of one author, Yuval Harari. He's an Israeli um, author who lives in America and he uh, teaches history. Wow. Okay. Um, can you? Yeah, but, but we have his books in Farsi here in Tehran, but now they are forbidden. Could you spell the name? Because I would like to. Yeah. Yeah. Y U V A L. N O A H. Okay. Uh, and Harari, I think it's H A R A R I, or H E R A R I. That's close enough. Harari or Harari, I don't know. We'll get there on Google. Thank you. I will definitely look yeah, that up. Yeah, you, you will find him. He, he's, he's great. <laughs> awesome. You know, it, it, it's interesting how when you're describing what you do as a, as a peace activist, it does really strike a chord with what I do and with what many of us do, which is talk to people we know. You know, spread the word in any way we can. And so much of it starts with, talking to our own friends and our own families. And I sense that it's the same with you. Is that right? Uh, Actually, when I wanted to start my activism, um, I thought I have to start it from myself. So Mm. the very first thing that I did was after the the revolution, uh, you know, for 14 years, there was this slogan on the wall of my house, a very big one, which was written in Farsi, down with America. 
Hmm. I just covered it uh, and painted three sim- symbols, one for peace, one for love, and one for smile. And under that, I wrote peace, love, and smile for the whole world. This wall is in front of elementary school, actually, uh, an elementary school for um, girls. Wow. Uh, I, I was thinking that um, if um, these children are watching this, uh, actually reading un- unknowingly, un- unconsciously, this slogan every day, so they are digesting done with anyone every day, mm-hmm. every minute. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted them to change it and digest peace and smile and love for, for the whole world, not just for Iranians, not just for Americans, for everyone. Uh, and it is still there. It rains on that, but it is still there. It is in bright red and I love it. I see it every day and I feel like I'm making a change. Definitely relate to that. I'm curious how unusual is it for you to be a peace activist? Are there many like you among people you know? Um, when I started, my, actually when I restarted my studies, I used to think um, no one thinks about peace in this country, but now it's been more than two years that I'm working with Iranian Peace Studies Scientific Association. Uh, I work with uh, Tehran Peace Museum and um, I have seen many people who are working for peace. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't say the definition of peace are the same for all of them, but uh, as far as I know, many of them are trying to find peace, not as its uh, negative meaning, and they want peace as its positive meaning. Hmm. And that's what, um, you know, uh, I love it. Yeah. Because for me, for me, peace is not only uh, the absence of war. For, for me, peace um, is way more than that. And when I see people like that, um, it makes me feel great. I'd love to know at what point in your life did you make the decision to devote your, yourself to this? What caused you to choose this path? Mark, I have asked these questions <laughs> thousands of times from myself. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> um, actually, I thought I... Um, I started thinking about being a, a peace activist when I restarted my studies, but um, some months after that, I found some uh, writing that I, I myself had written, uh, it, and it, there were for, I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago, and I found that, oh my God, I have written about peace all over, and I didn't know about it. Hmm. Um, I think it's not just a point, you know, it starts uh, fostering in you and uh, in, in some point you understand that you are going to go for it, but um, it starts being there way beyond that. Mm-hmm. I don't know when. <laughs> I, I, can, I can't give you a time. <laughs> You mentioned that there is not a free media and that social media does not feel always like a, a free or safe. I think that's what you said that you, yeah. you So how do you communicate with other activists in your space? We risk. <laughs> we actually risk using that social media that it might be monitored. 
I don't know, I, I find people like me in Tehran Peace Museum, I find them in um, Iranian Peace uh, Scientific Association, I find them in, you know, uh, meetings. When, when I go to a meeting and I see a songwriter who um, has the issue of peace, he wants to flourish peace in his music, I understand that there are people that I can go and talk to and learn from. Um, and that is, uh, I actually found a uh, world beyond, beyond war from one of my professors. Uh, she, she actually m mentioned Alex and uh, she said, uh, Alex needs someone to write uh, things in, far, uh, in Farsi. So I started working with world beyond war and I understood that there are Americans who don't want war with Iran. Um, yes. This is nice finding the network. I'm really enjoying talking to you and I hope we'll do this more. I'm going to ask you one more question. We are actually going to be also hearing from Fawad Azadi, who's also in Tehran. So yeah. we're splitting this podcast episode to, into two, two separate interviews. And by the way, Greta Zaro, who usually joins us, um, couldn't be here for this one, but she will be here for, for the Fawad interview. So I only want to ask you one more question. Did you feel um, during the period that there was um, a, a rising sense of agreement over nuclear nonproliferation between Iran and the US and the rest of the world, did you actually feel hopeful? Did that seem to you like it was a step in the right direction, or did you sense that it might not last? Uh, you mean the negotiation that they had? Yeah, when, I mean, the United States, it, it was certainly a very big deal and shocking to many people when um, President Obama made a, uh, concluded a treat, a, a agreement with Rouhani, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the entire global process of, of really, it seemed to me like a very positive step forward in de-escalating the war between the United States and Iran, or the, the fear of war. And I was very hopeful. I'm wondering, were you as hopeful as I was that that was going to bring peace? It, it may make me uh, <laughs> a little more... Um, uh, I, I have forgotten the word uh, emotional because I exactly remember the day and the date <laughs> when wow. was it and what did we do um, I remember even the streets that when when became when the um, news came uh, people came out uh, in the street and it was like a carnival which I don't know if you know or not we don't have any carnivals in our country I did and not it, okay. no we don't have any carnivals only for funerals we have things like that um, but that night I completely remember that people were dancing in the streets and you know it is forbidden in Iran uh, but okay. every, everybody w was so happy. Um, I myself, I don't remember if I was happy or not, but I thought it was a step forward. And mm -hmm. um, the, the thing I want to talk about more is the day Trump uh, pulled out from the deal. Mm -hmm. um, I remember 
I kept telling my family and my friends that no, he won't do that. Uh, before, before they say that yes, he did. Uh, I was so hopeful that no, it is just a threat and he won't do that, but he did. Yes. Um, and yes, I, I remember both the hope and the hopelessness, both of them. Well, I'm so glad I asked because I felt the same way. That was, to me, a very big positive step. And I was just devastated as you were when, when Trump, who, who again, I do not consider a legitimate president, but when, <laughs> when he announced that we were pulling out, I, I could not believe it, even though I had expected it. <sighs> well, you know, at least speaking to you, across the world at least we we know that we know that steps forward were taken and we can get back there and do so much more that was when there was an attempted at peace it it was really just a first step and so much more work needed to be done yeah i i, I love that part so much more <laughs> because yeah. Uh, yeah because now now in these two past weeks uh, i saw um, justin trudeau uh, and what he uh, what he did you know he didn't say anything bad he didn't threaten iran but just by empathy he made Iran to say the right thing, you know, he mm -hmm. made Iran to say the truth just by empathy. And um, I was thinking if, I don't know, I don't know politics and um, I don't consider myself a good politician, but if, if, even if he is imitating peace, he is getting some results, which yeah. is great. So um, why can't we do it all? just by talking, just by understanding each other. Yes. Well, on that note, um, Sherry, I think we can um, end this here, but I would love to have you on again. I really like talking to you. And um, I think it's great to compare notes from halfway across the world as our, as our countries, you know, <laughs> continue in the, the path they're on, let, let's us keep doing what we're doing. Okay, I, I will be so happy to do that again. Okay, thanks a lot. Just say hello from me and my friends to your fellow Americans and say we don't hate other people around the world, no one. Oh,
دروغ بودن و وطنم خیابوناش تیره مهبونی یا شروع بودن تو کافه ها همه نیچه خون یا عشق ده درز و فروغ بودن نکه کم بود دوستی و آزمندی و مداهنه خدا مرده سفسطه بار بر فصف خنه فقه آدم توی پول و ماشین و طبقت خونه شط رفاقت به دلایل وارونه شهنشین متمت دهاتی دهاتی بود پرس نبه یک کروش تو که خره بود خلاقیت دامی دوستی تبرعه بود دین تو پش موریش کفر موی سره بود تو اینکه یافتم جایی که جا بشم دست سال پیش نمیدیدم خوابشم از وقتی که سیاه راهشم از دست میدم آرامشم اونجا نمیسنجم نگو پنجه تا سه رنجانه مخلت سب نمیشم تو فرق داره شر فقط همه داریم تو درمین یا توری از I'm here to kick off the new year and new decade on the World Beyond War podcast, along with Greta Zaro, organizing director of World Beyond War. Hi, Greta. Hi, Mark. World Beyond War is a global organization dedicated to ending all war everywhere on Earth. And being part of this organization gives both me and Greta a great chance to work and interact with allies and partners in the peace struggle all over the world. Last year at the No War 2019 conference in Limerick, Ireland, we were privileged to get to know Fawad Azadi, who teaches American studies at the University of Tehran in Iran, and is a member of the World Beyond War Board of Directors. Fawad has published many articles about U.S.-Iran relations and has appeared in the New York Times, Al Jazeera, NPR, Euronews, and elsewhere. The past few weeks have seen a terrible turn towards war, provoked by Donald Trump's sudden and shocking decision to assassinate a senior member of Iran's leadership in Iraq. This major event has raised fears of both an immediate catastrophic war or of continued escalations combined with unconscionable U.S. sanctions against Iran, leading towards a slower path to catastrophe. This descent into warlike posture has also brought a resumption of tensions all over the world, especially between the U.S. and Iran. And the situation is so tense at this point that it almost feels like a radical act to do what we're doing right now when we say hello to our friend and ally in Tehran, Fawad Azadi. So hello, Fawad. Uh, hello. Thank you for having me. It's an honor for me to be with you. And um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, too. We'll, we'll both be asking you questions, and I'm just going to start. How do you size up the current situation between the USA and Iran? What do you expect will happen next? I think uh, we have a de-escalation um, right now. Um, just a few days ago, we were worried about uh, having uh, a military confrontation between Iran and the United States. But in the last few days, I think... Uh, Both sides are realizing that uh, attacking uh, each other is not going to solve anything. I think President Trump is probably thinking about his uh, re-election in 2020, and he realizes that the anti-war movement in the United States is quite strong, and uh, even the people who are not officially part of the anti-war movement uh, really don't want to have another Middle East war, and that's good news for people in Iran. And for people all over the world. (laughs) 
And how did these recent events impact you personally, Fawad, when you heard the news about the general's assassination? What, what was sort of the context for you as an Iranian when you heard that? And, and you know, how did you hear about it and how did you react? You know, I um, normally get up at about uh, five o'clock in the morning and I uh, opened my WhatsApp app and there was this message from a New York Times reporter trying to get an interview on the assassination. So I heard about uh, the assassination of General Soleimani from a reporter. Uh, then I uh, went to CNN and uh, they had this uh, live coverage and uh, I realized that uh, the general was assassinated. You know, since I teach American studies, uh, you can imagine I became very busy on that day. Um, we had a lot of uh, media sort of following the story. And um, when I went to class, uh, our students uh, were not happy. And the reason is that, uh, you know, they realized that uh, uh, this could escalate into something uh, much bigger. And uh, General Soleimani was uh, someone who was seen by a lot of people in Iran as uh, a, a national hero in the sense that uh, he fought against ISIS. And, uh, and people uh, were worried about ISIS getting close to the Iranian border and the fact that that didn't happen was attributed to him. Um, so that, uh, that sense of, there was this sense of loss uh, uh, of uh, someone who uh, many people uh, uh, thought of as uh, someone who's protecting the country's borders. You know, Iran went to eight years of a war uh, in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have uh, that memory and, you know, war is, is, is very difficult. As, uh, people who are associated with uh, world beyond war, you can uh, obviously uh, relate to that. So having another war, having a military confrontation with the United States is obviously something that Iranian people are not... Uh, interested in, you know, the U.S. military budget is uh, uh, over uh, $700 uh, billion a year, uh, seven uh, and, and, and some numbers, I think $730 or something. Uh, and Iran's military budget is about $6 billion. Hmm. So uh, obviously, U.S. military budget is much, much bigger than Iran's. And uh, people are uh, not really interested in sort of engaging uh, with, uh, with the United States in terms of military confrontation. I'm curious if you can help us understand what are the range of attitudes among the Iranian people towards the latest events and towards the long history of conflict between the United States and as well United Kingdom and Iran. We here on our side of the world very rarely get to know what the people on the street are thinking. You're obviously in a special position as a professor of American studies. How can you help us understand what, what is the general attitudes that the Iranian people have when something like this happens? 
you know, uh, Iran's population is over uh, 80 million uh, people. Um, it's a relatively large population in, in this part of the world. And uh, like any other country, there's a diversity of opinion mm-hmm. uh, on politics, on culture, on society, on religion. So people, people are different. Uh, uh, I think uh, almost everybody is obviously not interested in a war because Iran's recent history involved eight years of war. That is something that is uniting a lot of people. So people who differ on politics or religion or culture agree, generally agree that having a war, a new war is not really good for the country. So that's that's one thing that most people agree on. Um, there are uh, issues with regard to what U.S.-Iran relations should look like. Uh, there are some people who um, wouldn't want to see improvement in relations. They want to uh, sort of reduce tensions with the United States. Uh, they would like to uh, see more engagement between Iran and the United States. And uh, after President Trump left the nuclear agreement uh, about one and a half years ago, uh, a lot of people questioned uh, that uh, policy, that uh, decision. Um, You know, uh, the revolution happened 40 years ago. So a lot of young people, uh, even middle-aged people, don't remember uh, the Shah's time. Most people Mm -hmm. in Iran... Uh, were born uh, after the revolution, or they were they were ch- they were children when revolution happened. So they did not uh, have the experience of their parents when it came to the United States. They did not have uh, did not see uh, what the U.S. and the Shah were doing in Iran uh, before the revolution. And what President Trump has done is that he has turned a new generation of Iranians anti-American because uh, a lot of people don't understand uh, why the U.S. left the agreement when Iran was following it based on the reports they were hearing from the International Atomic Energy Agency and other, uh, other uh, outlets that basically said that Iran uh, was following the agreement when the U.S. left. So we have students that uh, don't like the Iranian government and uh, they also don't like the U.S. government because uh, they realize that uh, the Trump administration is not really helping with its difficulties, historical difficulties between Iran and the United States. So if we want to uh, have another... um, point of agreement among uh, most people uh, that is opposition to President Trump and his uh, policies uh, toward Iran. Uh, So this uh, maximum pressure campaign, as the U.S. government officials like to call it, is not really working out. We had some people like John Bolton who uh, talked about regime change. Uh, That obviously didn't happen. There were some people in Washington that wanted to 
uh, get more concessions out of Iran. They were talking about a better deal, and that didn't happen. They're actually losing the concessions they got under the nuclear agreement. And then we had some people like Tom Cotton that were talking about the striking Iran and yeah. sort of attacking Iran militarily. And that uh, is uh, understood to be a, a very difficult uh, policy because uh, Iran's military capabilities are extensive and having a military confrontation uh, between Iran and U.S. is uh, going to be more damaging uh, to U.S. than, say, attacking Afghanistan or attacking Iraq because Iran's military is stronger than those two countries when they were attacked by the United States. So uh, because of these um, situations, uh, people realized that um, uh, they were hoping for the Trump administration to stay in the nuclear agreement instead of leaving it. And uh, so that is another uh, disappointment. You know, in Iran, generally, people like the United States uh, when it comes to uh, the education that is available in the U.S. A lot of students like to study in the United States. Uh, we write recommendation letters uh, a lot for students who want to get admission. But when we had the Muslim ban, a lot of the students were disappointed because it's for the you know since the Muslim ban is on is in place, it's really difficult for students to get a visa. And um, so that is another another issue that a lot of people are concerned about. The Trump administration talks about being on the side of the Iranian people. But in reality, they sanction the Iranian people a lot. You know, sanctions generally don't help, hurt the elites of the society, the richer segments of society manage even under sanctions. So the poorer segments and middle income uh, people are generally hurt by the by the sanctions. So they, they see sanctions coming from the United States. They see um, a level of racism when it comes to allowing visas for students. Um, they see uh, a history of uh, confrontation, the support for the Shah uh, in the you know, between the 1953 coup and 1979 when he was overthrown. Mm-hmm. And then the support that the U.S. gave uh, to Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq war. There was this tilt towards uh, Iraq at that time. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld visited uh, Iraq uh, at that time. So the relations were uh, quite good between the U.S. and Iraq. And so that that was something that Iranians didn't understand because it's a conventional sort of a conclusion among uh, historians that it was Iraq that attacked Iran. So they were sort of wondering why the U.S. is uh, helping uh, the other side. So given this history of uh, difficulties and confrontations, and then the recent history of um, U.S. getting out of the nuclear agreement, this is another point of a general concession that, that uh, uh, things are not improving when it comes to the United States. A lot of people here uh, follow American politics because U.S. politics affects Iranians a lot. Uh, and they hear people like Bernie Sanders uh, talking about uh, a different foreign policy, a policy, a policy that does not support 
endless wars, a policy that uh, sort of is more human and humane and uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, it's not an aggressive foreign policy. Uh, so um, uh, there are you know people like Bernie Sanders have a uh, he, he has a lot of uh, friends and fans among uh, ordinary uh, Iranian citizens uh, because. Mm-hmm. To be frank, they're tired of all the policies that that they have seen from uh, President Trump. Yeah, if Trump is voted out of office and we get a new president in the United States, what would be your recommendation for the first step that they could take to try to promote peace and amend these relations? Would, would you say the first step would be to rejoin the nuclear agreement or, or what other first steps could they take? I think that would be a good first step, you know, that nuclear agreement that took about two years to negotiate. And uh, John Kerry, who was the U.S. Secretary of State, spent a lot of time with, with his Iranian counterpart to actually reach that agreement. And uh, the, the experts that I know uh, generally agree that the agreement was working. It was, uh, it was uh, something that... Uh, 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 Iran was following, uh, and so if the aim uh, was to uh, make sure that Iran does not develop a nuclear uh, weapon, as the U.S. accused Iran of doing, then uh, being in the agreement was the best way to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so that would be the first step. I think um, another thing that the new U.S. president uh, can do is to have uh, more exchanges between uh, Iranians and Americans. The more cultural exchange you have, the more academic exchange you have, uh, the more people uh, get to know each other, the better uh, the relationship is going to be. Uh, so when you have politicians with, uh, 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 you know, trying to push policies that are good for weapons manufacturers, then uh, you're going to get wars. But if you have people, normal people interacting, uh, then uh, policies that are good for ordinary citizens are going to uh, be uh, advocated. And, and when, when you don't have this type of people-to-people contacts, then it's easy to demonize the other side, whether it's Iran demonizing the United States or US demonizing Iran. So I think that would be another um, objective that the new president can uh, can sort of uh, design policies around, and I guess the third uh, the third step uh, would be to um, uh, help uh, not just Iran but the whole Middle East. You know, we have a lot of dictatorships in this part of the world. A lot of uh, difficulties that exist is because of the U.S. support for these dictatorships. Um, and, you know, we have kingdoms that are in, are not in touch with their with their people, and um, their, their corruption, their difficulties. I think they, um, uh, by not supporting these dictators, uh, the U.S. can actually let Middle East uh, experience uh, democracy. One problem that exists is the support for these dictators and, 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 and they rely on a foreign power for continuation of their uh, 
existence, that then uh, you know people suffer. So that that would be another thing. Taking care of this uh, Israel-Palestine issue, I think, uh, would be a fourth uh, fourth step. I, um, um, you know, Mr. Netanyahu's policies have caused a lot of difficulties for uh, Palestinians, uh, and there are some people who consider Israel to be an apartheid state. So, uh, and Israel gets to do a lot of. Uh, these things because of the support they get from the United States. Uh, so similar to uh, Arab countries' dictatorships that uh, exist because of U.S. support, uh, a lot of uh, anti-Palestinian policies of Israel exist because of U.S. support. And ending that or trying to uh, at least mediate between the two sides uh, uh, with an intention of ending these difficulties would be another thing that the new U.S. president can uh, try. As long as there's this uh, difficulty, problems within Israel and Palestine, then a lot of difficulties in this part of the world would not be resolved. I think people, the fifth point would be, you know, the people in Afghanistan, I think, are tired of having all the U.S. troops there. So, um, maybe uh, letting these, the people of this region to uh, look for their own security and establish mechanisms that uh, don't need foreign powers to interfere uh, would, be, would be another good idea. What we know from recent history is U.S. Uh, invasions uh, don't resolve anything. They cause more difficulties. So reducing these troops in this part of the world would be beneficial for American people. They don't have to pay uh, for, for all the costs that uh, involves. They don't have to send young people to uh, man these uh, places when there are other priorities that uh, needs to be addressed. So it would be good for all sides to um, actually uh, stay away from a foreign policy that is uh, trying to achieve uh, goals that uh, are not uh, in line with the interests of ordinary citizens, but they're, they're from here or from the or, or they're from the Middle East or from the United States. Yeah, we would absolutely agree with you on all of those points at World Beyond War. And we often talk about the data that shows that wars are not making us more safe. And, and there are so many former generals and government officials that come out all the time and say that this is not making us more safe, that it's increasing terrorism. So we would absolutely agree with you there. And we often talk about the fact that the U.S. is spending $1 trillion a year on war and preparations for war. And imagine, as you're saying, all of the good that could be done for everyone around the world if we if we reallocated that money. That's right, and you know we we have seen when um, countries try to resolve uh, difficulties through peaceful means, and they're genuinely interested in that, uh, then they actually achieve those goals. Uh, so creating a peace uh, is not really a difficult thing. You just have to. Uh, want to do it and, and uh, generally uh, the difficulties uh, are uh, are there because of uh, a special interest because some people make uh, profit out of war 
creating conflicts. Sometimes it's a policy that that countries follow. So staying away from those policies would be something that's going to be beneficial for beneficial for everybody. It's agonizing for me to hear these hopeful thoughts about how things can get better when it's really just been in the past few weeks that things have gotten much worse. And in the past couple of years with Trump's terrible decision to pull out of the nuclear arrangement, I feel gratified when you refer to what Donald Trump has done or what, um, what you know, Tom Cotton may be saying about Iran, because I, I know that you know, and it's so important that everybody knows that the United States is not unified behind the really terrible things that are going on, and that there is a lot of strong opposition. In light of that, there's a perception I have that I'd like to check with you that when a war begins, it tends to embolden the extremists and it tends to weaken the centrists. My perception is that Rouhani, who was the one who sat down with, uh, with Obama, I mean, I think they actually never met, but they spoke on the phone, which was a historic breakthrough for the leader of Iran and the leader of USA to, to speak on the phone, that there was a push from the Rouhani leadership to make things better. And that one of the dangers is that just as in the United States, things have tilted more towards extremes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. You know, Rouhani came into power by promising to reduce tensions with the United States. And, you know, he worked very hard to achieve that, achieving that nuclear agreement was not uh, very easy for him because under the nuclear agreement, Iran basically stopped its uh, nuclear program. You know, we have under the agreement, Iran was, had a limit on how much Iran could enrich uranium. The the level was 3.5%. To get a bomb, you need to enrich at 99%. So enriching at 3.5% is not going to get you a nuclear weapon. Uh, the amount of enriched uranium uh, was limited. Uh, the number of centrifuges were limited. So we had a lot of uh, limitations on, uh, on Iran's nuclear activities and also uh, very extensive uh, inspections that uh, were uh, available under the additional protocol of the non-proliferation treaty. And in fact, part of the nuclear agreement went beyond the additional protocol that that was designed in earlier years. So he did all that, and then he basically got nothing out of the agreement. Yeah. So the other the other segment of Iranian politics criticized him for sort of not getting much out of the policy right. of reducing tensions with the United States. In fact, Iran got more sanctions after the agreement. And Iran's oil sales went down after the agreement. So mm. instead of improving Iran's situation, Iran's situation got worse after the agreement. Yeah. So his foreign policy, in, in the eyes of a lot of people, did not achieve the goals that was supposed that that he was supposed to achieve, and that obviously was was not good for him politically. And Iran has politics like any other country, so they are. There are political parties that oppose Rouhani, and when they see him not doing well in uh, foreign policy, they point that out. 
And as I said, the failure of Rouhani's foreign policy is going to have a lasting effect because uh, you know we are going to have elections in Iran in about two years, presidential elections. We have the parliament elections in just a couple of months. And the people who supported the agreement are not doing that well in public opinion polls right now mm-hmm. because the agreement didn't didn't work out. And so when when you have a foreign power that's quite powerful and has a history of military intervention, uses the type of rhetoric that President Trump has used against Iran, then people get worried and they tend to vote for parties and people that raise the flag and try to create a sense of nationalism against the power that is aggressive in its policies. And you know, that's the nature of politics. I would also add that, just to be clear, at World Beyond War, we oppose all nuclear weapons, and it's absolutely hypocritical for the United States to have the most nuclear weapons in the world and then tell Iran and every other country that they can't have nuclear weapons. And at World Beyond War, we're calling for denuclearization for all countries. And, you know, that is uh, something that a lot of people in the Middle East have been talking about, having a nuclear weapon-free zone. And uh, as we speak, the only country that has nuclear weapons in, in the Middle East is Israel. And nobody else has, has that. In, in South Asia, obviously, Pakistan and India have nuclear weapons. But the hope was to uh, keep the Middle East free from nuclear weapons. And uh, I don't think that's going to be achievable because I don't think Israel is going to give up its nuclear weapons anytime soon. My role as organizing director with World Beyond War is I work with our membership around the world. We have members in 175 countries and we activate our our members to start campaigns in their communities to advocate for abolishing war. And so my question for you is, as we see this escalating tension, you know, what can we tell our members? How can I work with our members to advocate for peace um, on this issue? You know, I think uh, uh, from what I know from the United States is that when the U.S. government decides to go to war, uh, they uh, do a few things before actually sending the troops. One thing that happens is to demonize uh, whoever they're going against. Uh, And so they use propaganda to um, uh, highlight issues that may not be accurate. We remember what happened with the Iraq war and the claim that uh, Iraq had uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. For sure. Uh, of course, everybody knows now that that, that was a propaganda um, uh, point and, and, and that wasn't uh, really true. So uh, what World Beyond War is doing is uh, actually highlighting these facts. And uh, I hope that uh, we had more people paying attention to you, more people visiting your site and contributing to you financially, and uh, also uh, more organizations being uh, involved with these uh, facts. Because uh, if you don't have facts, then you will get propaganda and then uh, the the corporate media um, tends to fail when it comes to uh, um, sort of educating the American public uh, 
when it comes to these issues. We, we saw the mainstream media in the United States failing when it came to the Iraq war. And from what I read now, I see similar uh, stories that uh, are not going to be beneficial when it comes to uh, Iran and the military confrontation uh, against Iran. And uh, interestingly, the same people, the exact same people that um, wrote the stories last time for the Iraq war are actually involved with uh, creating uh, this atmosphere of uh, setting the stage for the U.S. government to engage in another war. Uh, so you have to uh, sort of be fearful. Um, uh, the same, uh, uh, you know, we have some organizations like World BR1 War that are against war. And then we have some uh, organizations that are pro-war. They don't, they, don't, they don't have the name pro-war in their title, but what they are doing is actually contributing to uh, an atmosphere that would uh, lead to war. Uh, so, so being careful about uh, the facts, I think, is going to be important. And that's why organizations like World BR War are going to be um, important organizations. And other anti-war groups that are um, active in, in this area are going to be, are going to be uh, important. Uh, another issue beyond uh, propaganda, I think, is going to be uh, basically um, uh, highlighting the cost uh, of, of engaging in these type of uh, activities. Uh, you know, the, the Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq war, I think the latest estimate is that about $7,000 billion, $7 trillion uh, were spent uh, in, in these activities. Uh, and uh, many people realize that instead of spending all that money on wars that did not achieve much uh, for the people, you know, those resources could be used for, for the things that people actually need. Uh, and if, if the US government is interested in uh, achieving foreign policy goals, uh, one way would be to spend that money uh, to help people of the countries that uh, they are targeting. So instead of bombing people's houses, they could build houses for people and they're going to get a much more positive uh, reaction and, and achieve foreign policy goals much quicker uh, by providing services to the people instead of killing them. And um, so, so paying attention to that fact, I think, is going to be important as well. Absolutely. That connects to our billboard campaign we've been working on, putting up billboards around the world with the slogan saying that 3% of U.S. military spending could end starvation on Earth, which is just a mind-boggling statistic, um, absolutely in alignment with what you're saying. I want to mention, you know, you were talking, Fahd, about pro-war groups as opposed to anti-war groups. I want to point out that, of course, probably the biggest pro-war group is... It, has to do with the profit motive involving the oil industry and that there is not only, it's not only, um, it's not only people's attitudes, but also the profit motive, I think that, that we're up against here. And 
probably the the biggest pro-war group i think is is not the one that's talking about war but the one that's quietly making money off of war um and with, you know they have all the resources to uh, finance those ideas yes. directly and indirectly because of the, uh, the the huge money that they make out of war mm. they they fund uh, organizations they fund um activities that directly or indirectly promotes war well and as you're probably aware because i know you follow u.s politics you know recently in the last um couple of decades we've now allowed dark money to influence american elections so i think it's a lot of that money that has elected our current incompetent and dangerous leadership um, <laughs> not telling you anything you don't know there <laughs> so um i had one more, i have one more thing i wanted to mention and then one more question and then i think we we sure. do need to wrap up um Fahad, i do follow your instagram and i was very saddened when i saw you you posted a picture of some dolls that were on etsy etsy.com and apparently these were dolls created by a persian or that the name was something about Persian or an Iranian source. And apparently Etsy um, rejected the right to sell these dolls on the site. Is that right, as I, as I understood it? Yes, um, this, is, this was a message uh, by an uh, Iranian-American lady. Um, her mother uh, was making dolls uh, that uh, well, you know, she was using uh, fabric that is American fabric. She was not mm. importing fabric from, from Iran, and, wow. and she 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 is also uh, in the United States. So we have an American, uh, an Iranian American uh, mother uh, making dolls that wear the Iranian uh, traditional dress. Mm -hmm. so, so the dolls, and they, they call them Persian dolls. And, and I guess you can... And thrown off Etsy. Right. Yeah. And uh, putting that grandmother out of business uh, because of, uh, you know, accusing her of violating the sanctions is something very strange because she's based in the United States. She's using uh, U.S.-made products. And she's using her uh, hand, handicraft skills to make something that uh, refers to Iran. It's, a, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with Iran. It's a cultural product. Right. Uh, it, 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 it's like, you know, U.S. sanctions. I just have to express how hurtful that is to see things like that happening. And the, you know, really the intolerance and hatred that seems to underlie that. One last question. I'm very interested in your background as a teacher of American studies. How did you choose this field? You know, I um, studied in the United States. When I went back to Iran, we had at the University of Tehran, this uh, Department of American Studies uh, they started getting students about a year before I, I got to Tehran. And uh, they had an opening, so I applied. And given the fact that I had studied in the United States, um, I, I got the job. So that's how um, I ended up uh, having that um, academic position. 
And the reason I was interested was uh, because I, I had the experience of living in the United States, uh, telling about, uh, teaching about the United States to other students that have not visited the country was, I, I thought, something important. We generally point out to uh, our students that uh, don't look at American politicians. There are many, many nice people in the United States, uh, and there are many organizations that advocate for causes uh, that uh, don't support war, don't support aggressive foreign policy. And I feel, I felt some responsibility to actually be in this field so I could talk about uh, the fact that uh, United States is uh, a very diverse country, diverse people, and a lot of the people in the United States don't support uh, policies that lead to uh, wars. And also this similar thing, um, talking about Iran uh, and for, for a non-Iranian audience was something that was interesting for me because I don't, I don't know if you have visited Iran, I don't think you have, no. uh, but if you, if you talk to some of your colleagues that have been uh, to Iran recently, we had this delegation from uh, Code Pink that came a few months ago. And, uh, our uh, then they, Liz also, Liz Remerswal also yeah. was up there. Yes, yes, and yes, uh, yes, she was here uh, about two, three months ago. Yep. And the experience that people have when they visit Iran is uh, they, they realize a lot of things that they heard about Iran was not actually true. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, sort of um, presenting those ideas to outside, uh, people outside Iran was something that was interesting. That's why I focus on Iran-US relations in my academic work, uh, work because um, one of the problems that we have is sort of presenting these facts to both sides. And uh, I wish we had more people that were doing what I was, what I'm doing. Uh, I, I think that would contribute to peace. Well, thank you so much, Fawad, for joining us on today's podcast. We are so appreciative of you coming on the show and sharing your opinions and all the work that you do to promote peace. Thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, stay in touch. We will. Okay, take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.